Well, good morning. We are here. We are starting our very first series here at Restoration Church. It's a series simply called Good News. And today we are going to focus on good news for the guilty. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open them up to the book of Zechariah. If you have no idea where the book of Zechariah is, you know, when you start seeing books titled Habakkuk and Malachi and Zephaniah and Haggai and all those other uh, weird Old Testament prophet names, you know you're at least in the right area. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we'd be happy to get you one. Otherwise, the words are going to be on the screen as well. Starting at chapter 2, verse 10, Zechariah says this, Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming, and I will love among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his dwelling place. I love that verse. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his dwelling place. He continues in chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick sta snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, you are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. I love that verse. One of my favorites in all of scripture. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And that day each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Father, we do ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, Father. I pray that you would open our minds to understand your words. I pray that you would free us, Father, from guilt so that we can walk freely in this world. In your name we pray these things. Amen. So let me fill you on what's going on here. Zechariah is receiving a series of visions concerning the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. God's people have been in exile for 70 years because of their sin. And now God is bringing his people out from exile and back into their land and into their city. Not only this, but God himself, it says, promises that he will return to once again be among his people, right? God is roused from his temple and he is coming to his people's rescue. God is about to spring into action. God is on the move. The king is about to return to his people. So what happens when God moves? What happens when people begin to experience hope? What happens when people begin to experience peace and reconciliation in relationships? Well, Satan the accuser is also roused. 
Whenever there is movement towards hope and reconciliation and forgiveness and restoration and, and peace and love, whenever these things are evident in someone's life or in a relationship, Satan and his work is threatened and it is attacked and he will begin to counterattack. And in this case, Satan does so by accusing Israel of its guilt. Now, to accuse simply means to torment one's conscience. Satan does this primarily through focusing on subjective truth, and subjective truth is just a fancy word for feeling. And only if he has to will Satan focus on objective truth, and objective truth is just a fancy word for reality. Now, now what I mean by all this is that if Satan can keep you feeling a certain way, then you become his little playground. He loves this postmodern generation that states that there is no absolute truth. Everything is determined by one's feelings about the world. Everything is determined by one's own experiences about the world. Whatever truth you determine is equally valid as whatever truth I determine. Satan loves this postmodern generation that says how you feel determines what is true. If he can keep all absolutes or objective truth out of your minds and hearts, then Satan wins. Do you get that? If he can keep all objective truth, all absolute truth out of our minds and out of our hearts, then Satan wins. And in this case, Satan begins to speak by saying, look at the filth of this people. Look at how dirty they are and covered in sin. They have not lived up to the purposes that you have called them to live to. They are not fit to be called your people. They are covered in sin. How can you stand these people? Do you ever feel like Satan does the same thing to you? Do you ever feel like you're constantly being reminded of everything that is wrong with you? Do you ever feel like the world is trying to convince you of who you are and what you are becoming? That the world whispers in your ear, you're not good enough. You're not pretty. You'll never amount to anything. You are not loved. I served as a campus pastor in St. Paul, Minnesota at a university for six years. And every fall, we would construct a tent in one of our courtyards. We called it the Tent of Meeting. And inside that tent, we would have 40 days of 24-7 prayer. Now, not only would prayer take place in there, we also had uh, scripture reading. We read through the whole Bible twice in that 40 days. We also had opportunities for people to, to draw or to paint or construct art while they were in there. And they could take these posters that they would create and they would, they would put them on the walls inside of this tent. And literally there would be layers upon layers of posters that people had made by the end of the 40 days. And so when this 40 days was over, I went into the tent and I was looking through all these posters and one caught my eye. It was a letter that someone had written to the world and it said this. Dear world... You try to pull me in, to make me a victim, but I will be transformed through Christ. Your images make me feel fat and ugly and so imperfect, but I was made in God's image. Your expectations make me feel dumb and not good enough, but I serve an audience of one. Ha! So there. You tell me I can earn and buy happiness and satisfaction, but all these things shall soon pass away. You, world, will perish. But I will rejoice in the splendor of the king. My treasures are not of this world, and God gives and takes away. You told me to leave the Jesus thing alone, 
I say, Satan, get behind me. When worry, fear, and tragedy strike, you taunt me, saying, So, where is your God now? And I say, He is always with me. Amen? Yeah. Can anyone relate? Can anyone relate to hearing the accusations of imperfection and self-doubt? Can anyone relate to a tormented conscience? There's a short story in the book of Numbers. You know, Numbers isn't one of those books we preach out of very often, but it does have some fairly popular stories within it. And one of the more popular ones is when God had called his people to go and explore the land that he was about to give them, the promised land. And so 12 men, one from each tribe, went up to explore this promised land, and they were walking through this land, and they said, Wow, this land is amazing. It's an incredible land. The fruit is huge. The soil is rich. It's an incredible land. But there's a problem. There are giants in this land. Literally, there are giants in this land, and they live behind huge, fortified cities. The text says, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. The world told us we were grasshoppers, and so we believed it. The world told us we were pathetic and insignificant, and therefore we are. The world told me I am meaningless and I have nothing to offer, and so it must be true. The world told me that I am fat and that I'm ugly, and that I have nothing to offer, so then it must be true. The Israelites believe the lie that they are powerless and insignificant, and that they could do nothing. And as we, Restoration Church, buy into these same lies, our identity becomes shaped by the external, the worldly voices of the world. And as the world drives its wedge into our souls, it separates us further and further from God's truth and life, And as the world speaks and its voices listen to, God's is suppressed. As we buy into the lies of the evil one, as we buy into the lies of the world, and we listen to that voice, then God's voice is naturally suppressed. And there will come a time, my friends, when you look in the mirror and you no longer recognize who is staring back at you. There will come a time when the lies the world is feeding you begin to sound like truth. You know, those lies that tell you you're a disappointment. That because you didn't get the grades your parents expected of you, you will never get a good paying job. Or the lies that tell you you're not pretty. As you stand in line at Target looking at the magazine covers, you begin to think that you're fat and that you're ugly and that no one will ever love you because you do not look like those people. Or the lies that simply tell you you're not good enough. That you're dumb and that you're insignificant. That you'll never amount to anything. That you're a failure. That you have no purpose. That because your marriage didn't work out, then you'll never be good at relationships and no one will ever again love you. Because you didn't get the grade, you're never going to contribute positively towards society. All you are is a burden. And you know that thing you did? Yeah, you, you, you know, that, that thing? That thing that you, you don't want anybody in this whole world to ever know that you did that thing? Yeah, that thing? That thing will never be forgiven of.
These voices take the form of children laughing on the playground at the kid who can't catch or throw very well. They take the form of mothers telling their daughters that they better lose weight and put on makeup or that they're never going to get a boyfriend. They take the form of fathers who tell their sons that if they don't make the team, they won't be popular and they won't have any friends. They take the form of teenagers yelling at their parents that they hate them and those parents believing that they are failures because of that. They take the form of spouses holding wrongs over each other's heads. They take the form of magazine covers telling you that you aren't pretty. They take the form of siblings getting better grades than you and telling you that you must be dumb. We've all heard them. We've all felt their weight. Some of us have been crippled by their pressure. But all of these are the voice of Satan reminding us that we are imperfect and that we have not lived up to God's purpose for us. And the thing is that when these are believed, we drive a stake into the ground. And we become chained and enslaved to that stake. And as much as we want to move forward with life, as much as we want to be free, as much as we want to be full of joy, as much as we want to move and progress in life, we always have the weight of that chain connected to that past experience. I've had students sit in my office back when I was a campus pastor, and they would tell me these experiences that happened 10 years ago that they're still enslaved to. They would come and they would sit in my office and they would say, you know, 10 years ago, my mother told me that I was fat and that if I didn't lose weight and if I didn't start putting on makeup, that I would never get a boyfriend, that I would never be loved. And that girl put a stake in the ground. And 10 years later, she was still chained to that stake. And every time she looked in the mirror, she was reminded of that stake. And every time she saw another girl that she thought was pretty, she was reminded of that stake. And every time she went shopping and tried on clothes, she was reminded of that stake. Every time she saw a magazine cover in a store, she was reminded of that stake that she had put in the ground 10 years ago. And she wasn't the only one. I mean, I had tons and tons of students came in and said the same thing. You know, six years ago, my best friend said that she didn't want to be friends anymore. And in my loneliness, I felt worthless. Well, she had put a stake in the ground, and she was still chained to that stake. She still struggled with worthlessness and loneliness because six years ago, this friend had said this to her. Or, or five years ago, I had sex with my girlfriend, and my youth pastor told me, I am defiled and wasted goods. That guy had put a stake in the ground that he was still chained to. He saw himself as worthless and wasted goods because someone once upon a time said something to him about something he had done. All these past experiences and believing of voices have effectively enslaved us to the past. And there are just too many people who walk around full of sorrow and self-pity and self-doubt because we're still holding on to the past and the lies about ourselves. And we cannot move forward freely because the weight of the chain is simply too much. Satan has turned you into his little playground and he is loving it. 
Now, the challenge to all this is as follows. Satan is a liar. Satan is a liar. Jesus stated that so bluntly in John 8 when he said, Satan is the father of lies. The only thing he knows how to speak are lies. Satan is a liar. And the only way Satan can be a liar is to condemn our worth and our identity. He says, because you didn't get good grades, you are not worth anything. Because you don't look a certain way, you won't be loved. Because you didn't make the team, you are pathetic. Because you don't have many friends, you are weird. You see, these are all attacks against our identity. They are attacks against our worth, and that is why they are lies. It might be true that I don't have a lot of friends, but you know what? That fact alone doesn't mean that I am weird. It may be true that I don't look like models on magazine covers, but that fact alone does not mean I will never be loved. It it might be true that I don't get good grades in school, but that fact alone does not mean I am worthless. It might be true that my first marriage failed, but that fact alone does not mean I will never find love again. Satan wants us to make us feel that our acceptance and worth are conditioned and are conditional on our appearance and our abilities, and how good of people we are. And that is why they are lies. You see, Satan works in the realm of feeling, not in the realm of truth. He tries to make us feel we are worthless, to feel unloved, to feel alone. But remember, feeling is a subjective experience. Feelings are not in and of themselves right or wrong because different people will feel differently about different experiences and circumstances. You see, when I'm at Target, and I'm looking at the magazine rack, and I see a cover with a picture of Chris Hemsworth, you know, ladies, ladies, Chris Hemsworth, the guy who plays Thor, yeah, come on, ladies, it doesn't make me feel ugly and worthless and that I'll never be loved, but that does not mean that for you seeing a magazine cover, it doesn't make you feel that way. That is what I mean by saying feelings are subjective, and that is exactly where Satan wants to keep you. He wants to keep you feeling. If he can keep you feeling, Satan wins. Except when it comes to guilt. Hey, he whispers, if you don't feel guilty, then guess what? You aren't guilty. He will tell you all day long that you were worthless and that you were unloved. But if he can keep you in the dark about your guilt, He will. Because guilt is a transgression of God's law. And if a person steps across that line and violates God's law, he incurs guilt in regards to God's justice. But guess what? Restoration Church, every person on the face of the earth transgresses God's law every single day. James says that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. We are all guilty under God's law. Every single one of us is guilty under God's law. I am guilty. But you know what? Very few people actually feel guilty. But how you feel has nothing to do with whether or not you are guilty. Guilt or innocence has nothing to do with feelings. Guilt is objective, where feelings are subjective. So when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, 
right? When the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and guilt is recognized, when guilt is felt, that recognition is the beginning of change and reconciliation and peace with God and new life. That's the Holy Spirit saying, come to me. Come to me. Leave that life of sin. Leave that life of death. Come to me. And Satan hates that. Right? Satan is losing. His grip is slipping. Satan hates that. And so when guilt is felt and the burden is heavy in one's heart, Satan has to change his tactics. And so instead instead of trying to keep guilt feelings away, he instead tries to flood our hearts with guilt and hope to bring us into utter despair. He wants to bring us as low as possible. He wants to dig us as deep into the ground as he possibly can. He will try and bring us as deep into our guilt in hopes that we will be overwhelmed by the weightiness of it. And that is what he does in our text with Joshua. Joshua is standing before God in filthy priestly garments, and Satan is standing there saying, Look, he is filthy. He is a horrible sinner. Israel has not lived up to the purposes you have called them to live up to. Israel's failed to do what they were supposed to do, and they stand here covered in guilt. But guess what? That is an objective truth. Joshua is guilty. What's funny about this is that what Satan is saying is true. Right? The father of lies is speaking truth, but he's doing so in such a brutal fashion. And the reason his truth is also a lie is because he does not understand God's love. He does not understand God's acceptance. He does not understand that God provides worth in an unconditional basis, that he provides love in an unconditional basis, that he accepts us unconditionally. And as we go back to the Zechariah text, notice God's response to the accuser. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Or in other words, Satan, shut up. You don't think I recognize their sin? You don't think I recognize how you torment them by convincing them of their imperfections? You don't think I recognize their lowly state? You don't think I recognize that these people are lost? You don't need to lecture me, Satan. I am well aware of their situation. Satan, shut up. I'm well aware of their despair and how they view themselves and how low they are. Yes, Satan, you might be right. They are guilty of their sin, but here is what I'm going to do about it. I am going to spring into action. I am coming to their rescue. They might be a burning stick, right, lost and condemned, but I'm going to snatch them from the fire. I see their lies. I see their filth. I understand it all, so Satan, shut your mouth. Here is what I have to say. Take off their filthy clothes. I have taken away their sin. And I will put rich garments on you. I have made them clean and they are mine. God does not love us conditionally. God does not look on the fact that you don't look like a model and say, I cannot love you. He doesn't see your report card and say, you are not worthy of me. He does not look on our church attendance and our Bible reading and the amount of money we give each week and say, well, finally, now I can accept you. He doesn't look at your pasts and say, man, you've just done too many bad things. 
You're not worthy of me. That sin you did a long time ago was just too big. I cannot accept you. I cannot forgive you. You are not worthy of me. Restoration Church, God loves you, sin and filth and all. God loves you. God loves you. Can I say that one more time? God loves you. You know, but the fact that God loves us, despite our guilt, despite our sin, that fact alone does not mean that guilt is not real, right? Our being sinful human beings deserving of death, that is an objective reality. We are guilty. I am guilty. You are guilty. We are all guilty, and we are all sitting on death row. And the only remedy for real guilt is real forgiveness. And the only way to walk free from the stakes in the ground so many of us are still effectively chained to, the only way to walk free from those chains and those stakes is also real forgiveness. And so God looked upon the guilt of his people. He looked upon the guilt of Joshua and he said, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I've set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Now, throughout the prophets, in particular Isaiah and Jeremiah, the servant and the branch, these were titles for a ruler from the line of David who would finally establish God's reign. God, in other words, is sending a rescuer. He is rousing himself from his holy temple, and he is sending a rescuer to redeem his people from their sin, to redeem his people from their guilt. And before his people, God would set a stone with seven eyes. Now, the stone functions as a mictum. Can everyone say mictum? Hang on to that word. We're going to come back to it in a few weeks. Now, a mictum was a truth so foundational that it needed an everlasting base. It needed an inscription. They wouldn't, they wouldn't write mictums on paper because paper, if they got wet, would dissolve. And paper, if they were thrown under the fire, would burn. Right? They, they wouldn't write mictums on goat skin because goat skin, when it gets dry, can crumble. Right? Mictums were too precious. They were too foundational. There was too much truth in mictums that they needed to be inscribed. They needed to engrave them in stone. And so what's with the seven eyes? Well, whenever you see the number seven in Scripture, you must think of perfection or completeness, right? These seven eyes are indication of God's perfect vision. Now, Satan is going to try and convince you of his lies and try and make you see yourself as insignificant and petty and that in your guilt there is no hope. But when God looks on you with his perfect vision, he sees your heart and on this stone through which he sees you perfectly, he is going to engrave his words so that you, they will last forever. This is an everlasting truth that is being declared, and nothing can dissolve it or smear it or burn it. It is an everlasting truth that is being engraved in an everlasting foundation. Now, we are not told what is engraved into this stone, but I imagine it is something like this. Holy to the Lord. That was the inscription on the stone the priests wore on their turban. 
I imagine it's something like, you are mine. And there is nothing on this earth or under the earth that can snatch you from my hand. You are loved beyond comprehension. You are sought after. You are pursued. You are loved. You are loved. And to prove my great love for you, I am going to make you pure. I will remove your sin in a single day. I will forgive you. I want to invite Emily and the worship band up. She is going to lead us in a time of reflection. You know, if the only remedy for real guilt is real forgiveness, then God has provided a real solution to our problem. You see, forgiveness is something God does. And real forgiveness is an objective reality. It is not something that is felt. Whether you feel forgiven or not doesn't matter. Right? Fe- uh, forgiveness is not a subjective reality. It is an objective reality. He is, de- he is a declaration regarding one's identity and status before God. Right? Forgiveness is an identity. It's a status before a holy God. But real forgiveness always comes with a cost. Say, for instance, that I have a lamp, and the price of the lamp is $50. Well, one day you come over to my home, and while you're there, you accidentally hit the lamp, and it falls to the floor, and it shatters. Now, you are clearly at fault for the destruction of my lamp, and so what are my options? Well, I couldn't make you give me the $50 so I could buy a new lamp, or I could make you replace it. Well, that's not forgiveness, that's retribution. Or I could say, I forgive you. You don't have to buy me a new lamp or replace it. That is grace. That is a gift you don't deserve. But I want you to notice the cost incurred by the forgiver. Now I, as the forgiver, am either left to limp around my home in the dark... Or I go, take $50 out of my own wallet, and I buy a new lamp. The one forgiving will always incur the cost. Because to forgive is to sacrifice. And the cost God incurred in order to forgive you, the cost God incurred in order to forgive me, it was an incredible cost. Because humanity has real guilt that deserves a horrible penalty. And so God, in love, took upon himself that horrible, horrible penalty so that we could be declared free. So that our status would be changed from condemned to forgiven. The cross of Jesus Christ is God shouting to the world, I love you. I forgive you. I have paid your penalty. You no longer have to live under the burden of guilt. You can be free. And as you are free, know that you are loved. Know that you are accepted. Know that I love you and cherish you the way you are. You cannot earn my forgiveness. You cannot earn my love. You cannot earn my acceptance. And so trust. That is all I ask of you is trust. Don't feel. 
I'm not asking you that you feel. I'm asking that you trust that you have been forgiven. You know, some of you, when you look into your past and see a field full of stakes in the ground, some of them are there because of what others have done. Some of them are there because you have put them there. What you have done to other people. And the process of digging up those stakes is the process of forgiveness. But please realize that in order to forgive, you need to give up the anger. And you need to give up the hatred toward the others that have wronged you and also towards yourself. You need to give up that assumed power that you think you have by holding grudges. You need to give up the assumed power you think you have by holding these stakes and all the wrongs over other people's heads. And trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to forgive you of all the sin in your own life is the place to start to begin forgiving others and also yourself of all the wrongs they have committed against you. To forgive is the sacrifice, and Jesus has done so, and he has given you strength to do so as well. Look to the cross. Look to the cross, because that is the source of forgiveness upon your own life. And out of that contemplation and recognition that you have been forgiven of all of the guilt and all of the sin in your own life, may you find strength to forgive others of the wrongs they have committed against you. May you find strength to forgive yourself of the wrongs you have committed against others and the wrongs you've committed against yourself. Restoration Church, if you have come looking for good news this morning, here it is. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. For in the course of a day, God has removed the sins of the entire world. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are a lost people. And you recognize that, Father. You don't need to be reminded of how lost and in utterly despair we are, Father, how how far we have fallen away. But you have roused yourself from your temple, God, from your holy dwelling, and you have come to our rescue. And in the person of Jesus Christ, God, you have liberated us. You have declared us to be free and forgiven of our guilt and of our sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And God, I pray that that truth would just penetrate hearts this morning. I pray that that truth would would touch hearts and change lives, God, and people would walk from this place free. I pray that you continue to work on us, Father, to allow us to accept your grace, to accept your forgiveness, and that we would simply place our trust in what you have accomplished. And Father, whether we feel that we are forgiven or not, Father, whether we walk out of this place feeling forgiven, God, doesn't matter, because the truth is, if we put our trust in you, we are forgiven. May that truth change us this morning.